Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Well, Ron, we are heading into one of my favorite times of the year. Yeah. That is, that's vacation time. Yeah, summertime. Summertime, (laughs) right. We're in May here. It's time to start thinking about your summer vacation and, you know, getting geared up for that. And uh, it's gotten warm out there, unfortunately. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm moving into a new home and it's been hot moving into that new home. Yeah. In and out. And yeah, it'd be nice to go somewhere with some water, cool off a little bit. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I definitely plan to hit the beach here in a month or a few few weeks. Yes, we are too. Do the family thing at the beach. So, yeah, a lot to look forward to as we move into summer here. And uh, speaking of moving into summer, you know, there's a lot going on with the stock market. And people are kind of nervous, you know, with some of the stuff that's going on with the bear market. Um, We're not going to dig too far into that, but we do have... um, some great topics here. We got the three bear market survivors. Yeah, we're going to talk about people that kind of learned their lesson coming out of the bear market, some mistakes people made, and talk about the kind of implications and lessons learned. Yeah, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot and talk about cars. Um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, there's been this kind of debate that's been brewing over the last few years about electric cars, EVs, um, versus gasoline cars. Which yeah. ones are really more cost effective? <clears throat> and now that we have a lot of choices in terms of EVs. It's time to really take a look at that that question, and so uh, we're going to dig into the EV market versus gas, and and uh, I get to talk from experience because I've been driving one. Yeah, for a while. welcome to the future. There you go. There you go. By the way, my name is Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Vester Pro with over 28 years experience in financial planning and investment advice. And I'm Ryan Borders. I'm also a certified financial planner, and I'm also a Dave Ramsey Smart Vester Pro. And we're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday morning. Um, you can find us uh, on our website. You can find our show um, through moneymd.net or iTunes. Um, listen to us anywhere in the world. Also, check out our website, moneymd.net. You can link to us there. Um, we'd love to, to hear from you. We'll, we'll answer your questions right here on the show. Um, and you got all of our previous shows that right there on the on the website. So there's a ton of research. Uh, of resources there for information about everything from Social Security, Medicare, to the stock market, to, um, you know, really any financial topic you can imagine. Um, But, Ron, we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this one's really interesting. I found this the other day, but, you know, New York and California lost $92 billion with a B in income during the pandemic as high-rolling taxpayers decamped to states with lower tax rates. So, obviously, you hear, like, Florida, Texas... And this is according to um, CNBC's analysis of new IRS data that's come out. Um, Though the trend of higher earners moving south to pay less in taxes and avoid having people pitch them uh, screenplays had already started, so people were already kind of leaving, COVID really pushed pushed it to make it about three times higher. So in 2020, 2021, the combined losses were three times higher uh, than in 21 and 19. Uh, the urge to flee has likely uh, receded somewhat since, but in the meantime, it's certainly been a big boom to Florida, which gained more than $11 billion, with a B, in income in the wealthy Palm Beach County alone, just in 2021. So, Yeah, it's really interesting, you know, how the pandemic has really 
made people aware of how mobile we are. Yeah. You know, yeah. people can work from anywhere. A lot of play, a lot of jobs now, they can work from anywhere. And so, yeah, people are fleeing the expensive states, and states have to compete for yeah. for those people to live there. So it's Absolutely. interesting. Um, yeah, some of those northern states really have taken it on the chin in terms of people moving out. So a very interesting fact of the week. All right, we're going to start off here with um, discussion about EVs versus gas. Ryan, you know, are electric vehicles really more cost effective? You know, that's been the question yeah. that, that's been tossed around a lot over the last few years. And uh, so we're going to dive into the financial implications of electric vehicles on your finances in the future. And, you know, comparing their cost to traditional gas cars, examine if making the switch to an EV would be a prudent financial move. Um, we'll be referencing a couple of articles from Bottom Line and one from Consumer Reports. Um, both of which have a lot of information about the current state of electric vehicles and their financial implications. And as you know, Ryan, I mean, this is not a subject, uh, this is a subject of interest for me, not only of interest, but also of experience, because I've been driving an EV for five years now. Um, Been driving the Tesla Model 3, and, uh, you know, I was one of the first owners of that in our area, because it's been five years since 2018. In fact, when I went to register it, they had to make up my model. Because they, wow. they'd never wow. seen one. Oh know? my gosh! <laughs> yeah. Wow, in Aiken County. So okay. uh, that was back in 2018. So I have a lot of personal insight about that. I'm looking forward to sharing about it. You're an, you're a visionary. You're an innovator there. there so you go. well, yeah. Let's kick off with the electrifying discussion by first addressing you know the primary question on everyone's mind, Steve. Are electric vehicles really more cost effective than their gas powered counterparts? And to answer that, we first need to look at you know initial costs of purchasing the EV. In general, you know, electric vehicles are more expensive up front than gas-powered cars. Um, However, the price gap is certainly closing as the technology continues to advance and economies of scale, you know, kick in. So we are starting to see lower prices on those cars. Also, a lot more cost-effective models of EVs are now available on the market. You know, they range, you know, you have the Chevy Bolt, um, Nissan Leaf has a car as well. Those are under $30,000 now. Uh, to the base, you know, Tesla Model 3 and Mustang Mach-E, they're in the low 40s. Um, so despite these more affordable models, um, they are more expensive uh, than comparable gas models across the board. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and but while the upfront costs may be higher, I mean, EVs tend to have a lot lower operating cost, um, as you would expect. You know, I mean, according to the bottom line, article, an EV driver can expect to spend about half as much on fuel um, compared to the traditional car owner. And, you know, that's been my experience as well. Um, you know, and it's not just the cost of the fuel that's lower for an electric car. I mean, electric vehicles also tend to have a lot fewer maintenance requirements, because, you know, which leads to lower maintenance cost over the life of the vehicle. I mean, things like oil changes, transmission services, you know, exhaust system repairs, you know, simply don't apply to EVs. Um, even brakes rarely need replacing on EV hmm. since they have regenerative braking and they require a lot less assistance from physical brakes. Hmm. Um, however, there is one major maintenance expense that EV owners often are worried about, and that's the cost of replacing the battery pack. Yeah, heaven forbid, yeah. that hmm. would be a big one. Um, yeah, the good news is that you know battery technology has improved dramatically over the past decade. And most manufacturers now offer warranties that cover eight years or 100,000 miles, some even longer. Um, Also, you know, there was a 2020 study by Consumer Reports 
that estimated that an EV battery pack's lifespan usually exceeds 200,000 miles. Oh, wow. Without ever needing to be replaced, you know, meaning the battery will more likely, more than likely outlive most people's expected life of their car. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's definitely reassuring for potential EV buyers. But let's shift gears a bit and talk about another important aspect of EV ownership, the availability of charging infrastructure, which is a great question. Um, charging infrastructure sure. is a critical component, you know, of these, you know, e of the EV experience, and it can have significant impact on the overall cost of ownership if you do a lot of trips away from home. So according to Consumer Reports article, um, the cost of charging an EV can vary greatly depending on where you charge and the type of charger you use. Charging at home is generally the most cost-effective option with the average cost of electricity in the U.S. being around 13 cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, that means it would cost about $4.30 to charge a typical EV with a 60 kilowatt or hour battery for from 20% to 80% capacity. Uh, public charging stations can be a bit more expensive um, than charging at home, and prices can vary widely. Some public chargers are free, like at a hotel, while others can cost more than twice as much per kilowatt hour compared to home charging. Yeah, that's so, yeah. exactly right. Yeah, I mean, the good news is, I think this whole concern is a little bit overblown because... The good news is you only use a public charger if you're away from home. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've found that 99% of the last five years since I've had mine, 99% of, of the charging is done at home every night. You know, when you get home from work, you simply plug it in and you have a full range the next morning. Hmm. Um, you know, it actually saves you a lot of time by not having to stop and fill up with gas, you know, yeah. unless you're on a trip. Yeah, so you never have to stop, fill up with anything unless you're on a trip. And so if you're driving on a trip, you know, the, it is certainly a good rule of thumb. The plan on an extra 15 minutes of charging about every two hours hmm. is mm -hmm. my rule of thumb, you know. And, you know, that's pretty small if you're just driving three or four hours. But if you're, it really adds up if you're trying to drive it on a long road trip. You know, it's something you definitely want to consider before you, you know, take your EV on some, you know, some, some six, seven hour trip. Um, yeah. So, I mean, now, I mean, speaking of public charging, you know, it's important also to consider the concept of range anxiety. I mean, many potential EV buyers, you know, are always concerned about how far they can travel on a single charge and whether they'll be able to find a charging station when they need one. And range anxiety is definitely a, a, a real concern if you're traveling, you know. Um, but the good news is that charging, the charging infrastructure is a lot more extensive than you may think, and it is rapidly expanding. Well, yeah, companies like Tesla, Charging Point, and Electrify America have already have a pretty comprehensive network along, you know, mainly interstates and are working hard to build out more extensive charging networks across the country as a whole. Uh, for instance, there are Tesla superchargers about every 100 miles along about every interstate and the car will map those out for you automatically when you plug in your trip um, into your navigation system that's pretty nice in fact it will tell you how long you will need to charge at each stop and it gives you live updates about how many stations are open at each supercharger non-tesla networks do a similar mapping and updates but the tesla one sounds pretty nice do they charge do, yeah. do they charge money to charge at the Tesla stations? Yeah, they do. If you, um, yeah, unless you're driving one of the upper end ones where they, they give it to you free for a few years. Huh. Yeah, you're, you're, you're paying. Okay. Um, but it's pretty minimal. You know, you go, it depends on where you go and what time of the day you end up there. So you want to 
hit ones that are tend to be less popular. Hmm. Um, and, and and then it's you know it might be like six seven dollars to to gotcha you okay. know to charge for fifteen minutes something like that. So nice. it's it's not a big concern as far as the cost is concerned. But um, yeah, and it is pretty easy. But but it is concerned. You got to kind of map that out and figure out how long it's going to take you. Sure. You know, and it adds some to your trip if you're if you're going you know a significant distance. So something to consider for sure. Unfortunately, um, the range of vehicles is improving as well. I mean, many EVs now offer ranges well over 200 miles, some even exceeding 300 or 400 miles on a wow. single charge. Hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's you know, means that for most daily driving needs, range anxiety certainly shouldn't be an issue. Um, never is for me locally, you know, when I'm driving around here. I mean, however, you know, it's still important for potential EV buyers to consider their driving habits and needs before they make a switch. I mean, for example, if you frequently take long road trips or live in a rural area um, with limited charging infrastructure, you know, electric vehicle might not be the best fit for you. Um, You know, while I certainly love driving my Model 3, um, you know, I still feel the need for a gas vehicle for really long trips. Okay. Um, I really do. but, you know, it would be a little stressful and time-consuming to try to drive, you know, a seven- or eight-hour road trip um, that ventures away from interstates because then gotcha. you have to really plan out your charging hmm. stops. Um, but now let's circle back to the financial aspect of EV ownership. I mean, we've covered, you know, the initial cost, the operating cost, and the charging infrastructure. But what about the incentives, rebates that help, you know, the overall cost of ownership of an EV? You know, there are several federal and state incentives available to EV buyers in the U.S. Um, The federal tax credit for electric vehicles offers $7,500 for eligible EVs that are below a certain price point now. Um, There are also some state incentives and rebates available. So you'll want to research the incentives available in your area to help offset the initial cost if you choose to buy an EV. On the question of whether EV or a gas vehicle is cheaper to own over the life of the car, there are now several like comprehensive studies that show the advantage of electric of electric is now clear. So there was a 2020 consumer report study that compared nine of the most popular EVs on the market and three comparable gas powered vehicles, including the best selling, top rated and most efficient in their class. The results are really stark. Um, the lifetime ownership cost for all nine of the electric cars was where many hours of dollars lower than all comparable, you know, those combustion vehicles. Yeah, thousands lower. Yeah. Thousands, yeah. With most EVs offering savings of between 6000 and 10000 And a more recent analysis also found it's now far less expensive to own an electric vehicle than a similar gasoline model when everything is considered. So that's a pretty big... Uh, Pretty big difference. Big difference. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's pretty conclusive. I think now, you know, with particularly when's gas, since gas has gone up so much in the past year, yeah. you know, with the war in Ukraine and that kind of stuff. You know, while I'm certainly, you know, happy that the the the, the vehicle I'm driving, the, the EV, is cost effective and environmentally friendly. Um, for me personally, you know, the best part of driving an EV is simply the driving experience, um, which most people wouldn't. Mm. Okay. wouldn't recognize um you know there's really no feeling like that immediate torque and acceleration of an electric vehicle um and it's almost completely quiet <clears throat> you know i mean i feel like i can pass a slow car or a big truck on any road without worrying if i have enough room or making all the fuss and the noise of downshifting your gas car you know 
Kathy hates it when it downshifts. So she loves driving my car because okay. you can pass somebody and they don't even hear you coming. You're just. You're I kind of like the noise rubbing. of the car. Though. I like that revving. <laughs> Some people yeah. do. Some people do. I just like the acceleration, okay. not necessarily the noise. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a little brash if it's, you, you know go. if we got a downshift and it makes all that noise, mm. like you're kind of stuffing it to them, you know, when you pass them. But um, but I also love the regenerative braking that makes me feel like I'm never having to get on the brakes hard or wasting gas by losing my momentum. Um, you know, and for me, that can, that makes driving a, little, a lot more aggressive without wasting gas or wearing out my brakes. It makes a lot more fun. You know, it really makes driving a lot more fun for me. Um, maybe, maybe it's just me, but okay. you know, I, I would be sticking with EVs going forward just because I really enjoy the driving experience. Awesome. Um, so anyway, it's clear that there are many factors to consider when deciding whether or not to make a switch to an EV, you know, from the initial cost, the operating expenses to the charging inf infrastructure incentives and your driving habits, of course. Um, but ultimately it comes down to each individual, you know, to kind of weigh the pros and cons and determine whether electric vehicle is the right choice for their unique needs and circumstances. But it's certainly something to consider and, you know, now it seems pretty obvious that there is some savings there on the table if you choose to make that switch. But don't go get a loan to buy one just thinking you're gonna save money that way. <laughs> no, let's don't let's don't, you know, buy out of your class or yeah. you know, don't change your, your your dollar amount that you would spend yeah, on a car. Exactly. Just make the decision of whether an E V makes sense for you. All right, and that leads us up here to our question of the week. Here's a big one for you, Steve. Should I take a loan from my four hundred one K to pay off credit card debt rather than going and getting a normal loan? Um, no. The no. answer is no. Never. <laughs> Never. Right? That's Dave Ramsey would say, yeah. you know, he'd pay your stupid tax if yeah. you did that. You know? <laughs> we won't say that, though. That would be yeah. Dave Ramsey. But I'm just saying, no. I mean, you. the problem is you're just, you're just patching up, you know, the symptom. You're not fixing the problem. And so if you go and, and get a loan from your 401k, you got to pay that back over five yeah. years. Now you're going to be underwater even more on your payments, um, and and then you're you're, you're probably going to just run up more credit card debt. So yeah. it just doesn't solve the problem. You need to you need to drill down your budget. You need to come up with a real cash flow solution that you can pay off your debts the hard way, but you know, but do the real way where you really can get it paid off once and for all. And then you need to just start paying cash for things and not not use credit cards at all for carrying a balance. Then it's good to keep things in your lane. Keep retirement for retirement. You know, when you start exactly. dipping into other things, it can really mess up a lot of your goals and planning. And so keep retirement for saving for retirement. Don't try to utilize it for other things. It can really throw you off. Yeah, right. I mean, it's about behavioral, you know, changing your behavior and yeah. changing your habits. It's not about just the finances of it, just because you can take money your 401k. Plus, you're taking money out that's in the stock market, you know, that's invested, that that was probably going to make a, a good return over time. So yeah. you're taking that money off the, uh, you know, out of your investments too for Absolutely. that period of time. So no, don't do that. Good question though. Good question. All right, and that leads us up to our next topic here: three bear market survivors. Um, share their biggest lessons. Yeah, Steve. So we're really going to talk about mainly three people today that learned their lessons from kind of what we just came out of, you know, this bear market last year, some of the fluctuations we've been dealing with. You know, for many investors, it's been a painful journey. Those who rode the momentum in big technology stocks higher and higher were burned out last year when, you know, obviously technology stocks took a huge hit. Um, some investors say they are still waiting in a wait and see kind of mode, um, but obviously we've had a little bit better markets uh, this year, um, 
But although you know the markets have calmed in recent weeks, stocks have bounced from their lows. Many investors remain on edge. So people are still a little worried as we talk to clients. Um, so this is an article that comes from the Wall Street Journal. Um, they basically checked in on a few individual yeah. investors to see, hey, how are they navigating uh, these markets and kind of what lessons did they learn from the bear market last year? Yeah, exactly. Those are great topics, you know. And so they have three different um, examples here, yeah. right, of people that were doing this. And so the, the first um, example here is this guy, Mitt, uh, and, and, you know, I don't know his, how to, his we'll last just, name, but he's out of Houston. We'll just call him Mitt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> out of Houston. And he says he was swept up in the frenzy uh, of speculation, you know, dominated back in 20 and 21 during the pandemic, you know, partly because he had more time on his hands, right? And mm -hmm. so he chased the hot stocks. You know, he looked to ride the momentum of the shares that seemed to only go up in one direction, and that was up. Um, and with an undergraduate degree in aerospace engineering, you know, he really thought that he kind of knew what he was doing. So he doubled down on one stock in particular, it was Virgin Galactic, you Ouch. know. <laughs> Everybody Ouch. was all excited Ouch. about, you know, the, uh, the, the space um, kind of tourism industry, if you will. And um, so he doubled down that and he kept buying more. And he was convinced that buying more of that same stock on sale as it went down would, would eventually pay off. And so he put tens of thousands of dollars into that company. And, uh, you know, it surged as high as 60 back in 21. But then, um, you know, as Twitter and all the social media platforms really jumping on the bandwagon and really running it up, but then it ran out of steam and, um, you know, things turned. It dropped more than, I, I don't know, I mean, it went from 60 to $3.6. So yeah. <laughs> 95%, yeah. you know, lagging the market during this this year's uh, kind of, you know, bear market. I mean, the, the drop last year. And so he just kept buying the dip, he says. And uh, so that didn't work out very well for him. Yeah, so he learned how tough it is to time the bottom for any investment and says the value of his stake has tumbled more than 50%. Ouch. Now he says he's paying more attention to how companies are valued and whether they generate profits. That's a good idea. Um, he recently invested in the energy company Occidental Petroleum, which is actually down about 6% year-to-date, roughly. And... Um, a clothing company, Haynes Brand, which is actually down like 31%, over 31% year-to-date, so not doing too good there. Uh, Virgin Galactic hasn't been profitable, and he says he wishes he had sat on the sidelines and dug into his finances before jumping uh, into that stock. Uh, the next lesson, uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket. So this is Mrs. Kim, a 46-year-old accountant in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, was all in on stocks such as NVIDIA, NVIDIA? is that how you say it, NVIDIA? Yeah, I think so. And Tesla, building up, speaking of Tesla, uh, building up a combined position in two companies of more than $2 million. Um, he uh, enjoyed tracking the companies and hung on to everything Elon Musk and the chief executive officer at NVIDIA said. And then he dove into other stocks, including those like the insurer Lemonade Inc. Um, and another technology company while trading options in a bid to juice his returns overall. So he watched his portfolio skyrocket until 2022. Um, and throughout the year, he says he was hit with calls from his brokerage firm to post more cash to cover the trades he had put on with his uh, borrowed money oh, or wow. options trades. That's not good. Not good. So Mr. Kim says he ended up losing all of the money he made since he started 
since the start of the pandemic, accumulating losses of more than $1 million in his oh. brokerage account. Oh, my goodness. That even ate into his initial investment. The losses were stressful, as he says. At times, he skipped vacations with families to spend time uh, trading to keep an eye on his portfolio. Ouch. So, and mm. he says, I feel like I lost many years of my life. I had, uh, and he said he had many sleepless nights. So not, not a great experience for Mr. Kim here. No, that's definitely not the route you want to go. Yeah, I mean, he said, said he decided he needed a different approach. You know, he said he still believes in tech, but he's tried to diversify his holdings. He's taken stakes in companies that promise, you know, steady cash flows, dividends. Um, you know, so a lot of the dividend companies from S&P type companies. He's also accumulated positions in metals through exchange-traded funds. Um, and he hopes the diversified uh, holdings will bring some peace of mind and better shield his portfolio from the volatility that might, you know, might might come. Um, his portfolio looks quite different from last year, he says. And he isn't alone. You know, all investors have yanked more than $2 billion from technology mutual funds um, this year, um, particularly last year, I guess, after pulling $18 billion from such funds in 2022, um, according to new data from Lipper. And, uh, you know, in contrast, I mean, investors have added money to funds tracking financial and banking companies, um, but probably not recently. So <laughs> you know, yeah. since those are down too, um, and it just shows the perils of buying individual stocks, Yeah, you know, and chasing a sector, um, Ryan, I mean, you know, you, you need to diversify even more than what he suggested. Here. Absolutely. I mean, you need to be in a lot of different asset classes, not trying to time any of them and stay out really out of individual stocks with yeah. your serious money. You know, it's one thing to have some fun and buy some with the, you know, some of your play money um, that you can afford to lose. But we all know anything can happen to an individual yes. stock company. Um, so you want to stay out of that. You really want to diversify. That's the key. And uh, yeah, he's just rolling the dice. And one of the big lessons for that is the stress on his life. It's exactly. just a lot less stressful to be in a more highly diversified portfolio. When you're doing this individual game, you are just, every day, the news is just stressing you out. And yeah. I don't think that's the way to live. Yeah, you just got to pay attention to it, and you think that you're somehow going to, you know, make the right move, and, you know, you think that you got to figure it out, and you can't figure it out. That's the point. The yeah. point is, it's, it is, it is, the market is unpredictable. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Past performance doesn't equal future results, and, is a reason for that disclosure because it's true. You know, the market is based on future things. Everything we know today is already in the price of the stock Absolutely. market. And so we're, what, a mark, what a stock's going to do tomorrow is unpredictable because we, we don't know, because it's based on new events that haven't happened yet, yeah. new information that hasn't come out yet. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of the moral of the story there. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely stressful. Um, so this is the third individual. So she's yeah. in her 30s. Um, she's been trading frequently since the start of the pandemic. Um, she previously worked in law enforcement, so I can't really say her name, but we'll call her Samantha. Um, so she says she entered dozens of stocks and option trades a week while dispensing investing tips with groups on a gaming platform called mm. Discord. Uh, many of these traders pay more than $100 a month for trading tips and the chance uh, to chat with her and listening to her breakdowns of trades. But um, but she says one of the biggest losses still stings her. So she placed a risky put option trade tied to the S&P 500 that she thought would pay out if stocks kept tumbling over the next few days. 
Um, some surprising economic data stoked a brief stock market rally, and the trades turned against her. She says she ended up with losses, a loss of more than $50,000 in a single session. Ouch. And that's a big, you know, big portion of her portfolio. So put options, just to let everyone know, gives traders the right, uh, though not the obligation, to sell their shares at a stated price by a certain date. Call options grant the right to buy. Um, so she says she used... Uh, she used to allocate more than a third of her entire portfolio on big bets. This year, she is more cautious when sizing up her wagers, often choosing to take less risk in a market that has been notoriously tricky to navigate. Um, you know, she's being more careful when holding trades overnight, wary that markets can quickly flip-flop in the morning and then, um, you know, at the opening bell. Her biggest lesson, keeping your profits is more important than making them. Uh, the real game, she says, it's really about capital preservation it's how much I can make and how much I can keep. So really the main reason we want to go into this, Steve, is just talk about the dangers of playing this game. You know, Warren Buffett right. says, hey, you know who's skinny dipping yeah. when the tide goes out. And we had the tide go out last year. Yes, we did. And this is showing we had some people skinny dipping. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yep, they weren't wearing any clothes. That's <laughs> not good. Yeah, you, you don't want to be in that game of trying to pick stocks and time the market um, and you know, taking a lot of risk. Um, you know, you want to take risk, you get paid for. And yeah. there, academically, there have certain risks that have been proven to give you a higher return. Absolutely. And so you, you choose to take those risks by being in, you know, stocks in general versus bonds or being in small stocks or value stocks or international stocks. You know, that those are being in the right asset classes are risks that you historically get paid for. But, you know, being in one stock or, diver or not diversified is called unsystematic risk. You don't get paid any extra return for that. Yeah. You're taking risk. It's purely speculative. And uh, that's what these folks are doing. And, you know, it, it, it does come back to burn I mean, you eventually if you keep doing that game. All of them, it was, they were just following what was going on. It was just trend following. It wasn't really any analysis. Is hey, just it looks good. I'm going to keep doing this. And then obviously they got hit. And then they're like, well, maybe I should actually look at fundamentals. And they're still not doing a good job. <laughs> that's exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, good topic. Um, that leads us up here to our final thing. And that is the prescription of the week. And the question is, you know, are you leaving money on the table, Ryan? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are lots of people that do not participate fully in all the benefits they get from their job. Um, okay. You know, for instance, there was a recent study that showed that 25% that of people do not get their match in Ooh. their 401k plan. Um, and that's free money. You know, all you got to do is put it in and you get the match, right? And so... But then there's also, you know, HSAs that a lot of larger employers will, will contribute to you for. If you put money in or they'll give it to you, you get to take advantage of it. It's a great tax break. Um, you know, there's tuition reimbursement. Um, some of them have, you know, dental plans and, you know, various other plans that you can, you can take advantage of. So just look at your benefits from your employer. Make sure you're taking advantage of everything you can so you're not leaving some money on the table. Yeah. That's your prescription of the week. And that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us out on our website, moneymd.net. Send us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. Or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your week. Material in this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment tax or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. All hosts are representatives of Richard Young Associates and Registered Investment Advisor.